Hello and welcome to this week's Mooney on Politics podcast, which is being recorded on Thursday, the 23rd of December, at about 1.30, 1.45pm. Uh, this is probably the penultimate Mooney on Politics podcast of 2021. I would hope to get one done between now and New Year's. Um, well, that's assuming that I don't party too hard and don't absolutely exhaust myself having to get home by 8 o'clock at night. But we'll see. Um, definitely it's my intention to try and do one would be a political review of the year, but less so around events and more so predictions for next year. Anyway, here goes. So, as always, this is based on the most recent broadsheet column, which again looked at which has COVID restrictions. And as I said in the column, in his hefty 2011 tome, The Better Angels of Our Nature, the noted cognitive psychologist Professor Stephen Pinker argues that the main lesson from history is that society has become less violent. The central premise is that there has never been any time in the history of mankind when we were less likely to die at one another's hands than now. It's an uncommonly positive and optimistic analysis of the state of the world. And right now we could do as much of that as we could. Pinker's outlook is not unique to him. There are many others have reached the same conclusion, which is no surprise because the stats are fairly convincing. If you look across the globe, life expectancy is now double what it was 100 years ago. While 10% of the world's population still lives in extreme poverty, two centuries ago the figure was over 80%. And over those two same two centuries, in a not unlinked development, the level of world literacy has fallen from 88% 200 years ago to just 10% now. Globally, we have created more wealth over the past 40 years alone than we had in all of history, all of human history before that. Though clearly the share out of that is still problematic, with the gaps between senior management and shop floor workers wider now than it would have been 30 years ago. War, disease and natural disasters now claim fewer lives than ever, even allowing for COVID-19. Child mortality, which is defined as dying before the age of five, is 4% today. And that's still a tragically high figure but it's only a fraction of the 50% rate that prevailed two centuries back. In the same book, Pinker speculates on what he calls the source of the strange idiom to cut off your nose to spite your face. Citing sources from the late medieval period onwards, he says that cutting off one's nose to spite one's face was a prototypical act of spite. This was done as, quote, an official punishment for heresy, treason, prostitution or sodomy, but also, quote, as an act of private vengeance, end quote. But just as gross and as inhuman as medieval behaviour was, even they were rarely moved to self-harm as a way to spite others. In these more advanced and enlightened times, neither are we. Opinion polls, surveys and actual votes conducted across Europe show that two-thirds of us broadly support and back government-imposed COVID restrictions. Most recently, in a fairly heat and fraught referendum held at the end of November, 62% of Swiss voters rejected libertarian claims that the government's COVID certificate, quote, implicitly introduces a forced vaccination, end quote. By the way, this is the second time Swiss voters have gone to the polls on this, and it's the second time they've, voted gov- they've backed government measures. I think the last time might have been about a slightly higher figure, 64 or 65%. Now, that doesn't mean that the voters particularly like the measures, or that they believe the particular measures represent the very best the state can do. It means that they're prepared to follow the guidance and protect themselves and others by following the, gu- following the same guidance as everyone else. In other words, they won't cut off their nose to spite their face, or even the government of the day. 
they will act for the greater good. But neither does it mean that the voters believe that their governments are doing all they can to counter the disease. But it does point to people understanding the severity of the potential threat and seeing the restrictions, curfews, lockdowns and circuit breakers are not unreasonable responses. Though they do not have the pub and restaurant curfews we have, publicans and restaurateurs across the UK, particularly in London, have been reporting significant fall off in bookings and trade, with people not deciding to wait for Johnson to act, and as we saw this week, he decided not to act, well certainly not this side of Christmas. People themselves across the UK are deciding to voluntarily curfew themselves, and a friend of mine reports seeing that local pubs, particularly outside London, almost empty after 7 o'clock. So, does that mean that British voters are content with Johnson's government not giving them the advice that our government is giving to us, and that Johnson is allowing them to decide for themselves? Is the fall-off in support for the Tories that we saw in the polls and in last week's North Shropshire by-election due to public dissatisfaction at the government's handling of the Covid response? Or is it a more general despair at Johnson's bumbling style of leadership? It's hard to know for sure right now. I suspect most voters in most countries feel that governments could probably be doing better or maybe even doing more, especially when they see what's happening elsewhere. But they're still, over 60% in most cases, quite content to back their government's measures. Last Saturday's announcement by the Dutch government of even stiffer Covid restrictions was seen by many here in Ireland as a vindication of what our own government had done, with a certain amount of derba for the grace of God go we thrown in. But is that a fair assessment? Many would suggest not, including Professor Anthony Staines of DCU, who I quoted here a few weeks back. Responding to the news of the Dutch government decision on Twitter, Professor Staines said that they were now doing the right thing, but that was only because, quote, the Netherlands' public health response has been as weak as ours, end quote. Because this is the real issue for the Dutch, the Irish and many other governments. It's not that the scope or pace of the responses via curfews, lockdowns or restrictions has been too slow or too whatever. It's that the seeming paucity of their substantive preparedness to cope with a threat, albeit a threat that history tells us when time will abate. So I think the fundamental question our government and many other governments are facing is this. If over a year after you first imposed a lockdown to halt the spread of a virus, you find yourself doing the same thing again, to stop what is essentially the same virus, despite an impressive vaccination campaign, then isn't there something wrong with your response? Because identifying this something is the key missing element that's in all our interests. And this isn't a party political point. While the main opposition parties have been vocal in calling for more, they've been less response, they've been less robust rather, in, exp- in expanding upon what that more might be. Now, in fairness to the opposition, and indeed to many backbenched government TDs and senators. They've all rightly identified the gaps in the state's approach, specifically how the departments of finance, public expenditure and health have managed to leave us with 30 fewer ICU beds than planned for just three years ago. By itself, this is a stunning failure of basic statecraft. Because listing the problems and the failings isn't a difficult task, however. There are plenty to choose from. The general problems with contact tracing, including the Neffet advice to stop contact tracing at schools, and the, the mistakes made in the nursing homes in the early stages of the pandemic, the mixed messaging and antigen testing, the confusion around COVID-19 advice for migrant communities. And all of this is before we get to the long-standing issues of retu- recruitment and retention of nurses and uh, doctors and consultants. No, 
what we need to do is design to sort out which of these items are understandable errors by a system that is, that is still, however, progressively getting to grips with the situation and which are fundamental failures of structure or of policy or of understanding. Now, one of the best decisions made by the last government, which was made, I think, on the 6th of May 2020, just before I went out of office, was to establish a special Dáil Commission on the COVID-19 response under Deputy Michael McNamara. One of the most churlish of the current government's decisions was to allow the dissolution of the committee on the 8th of October 2020, after it just published its first report. Now, I can totally understand why some officials might utter a sigh of relief at seeing the oversight of the state's response diffuse across a number of our office committees, rather than to just one. What I want lost to understand is why their political masters would decide to go along with it. The elected politicians who agreed to dissolve the committee have metaphorically cut off their political noses despite their faces. It was a bad move, it was an ill-judged move, and it should be fixed as soon as possible. The committee should be re-established with a remit to tackle the question I posed above. It will do us all an enormous favour and prove that an all-party political approach can work by helping identify the something or the some things we should do to help avoid going round this merry-go-round again when the inevitable next wave comes. Though in fairness, the production of antivirals sometime in 2022, and we know that they're well at the stage of development and many cases have been approved, should be a game-changer next year. So, may I wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas and a happier New Year. Because history tells us, in all likelihood, that 2022 will be a much better year than 2021. And I think we can all believe in history just as much and as strongly as we believe in science. So that's this week's Money on Politics. Hopefully you'll get a chance to enjoy the couple of days run up now to Christmas and Christmas itself. And maybe early next week, I'll come back with a review of the year gone and maybe give a couple of thoughts on to what I think next year will bring, because I genuinely think 2022, politically, will be a very, very significant year. Not just because we will see the changeover in the offices of Taoiseach and Tarnished, etc. around this time next year, because I think the fact that that's coming up will change the political dynamic, certainly in the second half of next year. And that might even squeeze its way forward into the first half. Anyway, that's all for this week. Take care. Have a happy Christmas. Goodbye.